Well, we are looking again today at 1 Peter chapter 5. So I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Today we're looking at verses 5 through 7. 1 Peter 5 verses 5 through 7. Peter writing says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Now, if you haven't already noticed, I have titled this message in the passive. The passive says, be humbled, instead of be humble. There's a difference. And we're going to talk about that when we get down to verse 6 and what all of that means, because I think that this is very helpful and key to us. I remind you that Peter is writing to a persecuted flock, experiencing persecution under Nero. You remember Nero set Rome on fire, and then he blamed the Christians for it. That brought about a lot of persecution. In verses 1 to 4, he told the elders in the church to shepherd this persecuted flock with a willing, voluntary oversight because this is God's will. God wants them to be eager examples and not lord over his flock. And as we begin verse 5, he returns to addressing the church, the people. And first he addresses the younger people. He calls for their submission. And then he addresses the rest of the congregation and calls for their humility and trust. I believe for any church to function, it must have these three qualities, and that are submission, humility, and trust. But before we look closely at this, I want you to notice that word likewise. It could be translated in same manner. But the word itself is used in chapter 3 two times, and Peter uses this after he has called for the congregation to submit to governmental authorities, that's chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He called for them to submit to their masters. If you remember, the predominance of the church was slaves. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 and 7, they were also to submit in their marital relationships. And now he adds a fourth area. And that fourth area begins in verse 5. And he says to them to be subject to your elders. Now, we pointed out this term elder and spent five weeks discussing this. He's not talking about older people. He's talking about church leadership. And we went into great de detail to talk about this and to explain that when you're looking at the leadership in the church, first of all, there's only two offices that are mentioned in the Scripture. You have pastor and deacons, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, specifically translated overseer and deacons. And we saw from that also in Acts 20, verse 19, as well as 28, it talks about 
elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds. And we said in those instances, it's using them synonymously or interchangeably. When you talk about a pastor, you're calling him an elder. He's an overseer. He's a shepherd. He's a teacher. All of these different things. Now, I want you to notice as he addresses uh, the congregation, he begins with the younger people. He says in verse 5, You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. Now, because he's using a plural noun here, it's, it's referring more to a mixed group of men and women. And it could have been translated, You younger people. And it would have picked up that. And the reason why he speaks to those who are younger is because that's the group that needs to be reminded most of the spiritual authority that is in the church. And that is also the group that tends to be the most aggressive or the most headstrong of any group. It's true that everyone in the church is to submit to their leaders, to their elders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says... Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So he tells the younger people in the church, as well as everyone in the church, that we have a responsibility to submit to those whom God has placed into this role as elder. And again, reminding you that Peter was an elder, as he says in verse 1, and he was writing to the elders in the church in verses 1 to 4. So just as they were subject to the chief shepherd, the congregation is to be subject to the elders. Now, let's focus in on that word subject, to be subject. That's the word hupotasso, and it means to line up under. It's a military term. It's a term of command. And when it's used with the aorist tense verb here, it calls for an attitude of voluntary submission on the part of those who are younger or those who are submitting to the elders of the church. He's calling for everyone in the church basically to put aside pride and to be willing to place themselves under the leadership of their shepherds. And just a couple verses that would also remind you of this. 1 Corinthians 16, 15, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have been devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, and that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. That's a good example. Another example would be over in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and he says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And it's interesting that he ends that verse with talking about peace because the unfortunate problem that we see in many churches is the friction the tension that exists between the leadership and the people. And there are various reasons for that. 
Some is on the part of the shepherd causing this because the first four verses talk about the behavior and the attitude that they are to have as they shepherd God's people. They're not the Lord over the flock, but they are to exercise oversight, not by compulsion, but voluntarily. They're to do this according to the will of God. They're not to do it for sordid gain, but they're to be eager. They're to be examples because they're responsibility is to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about Jesus being the head of his church. But you know, this again is not the first time Peter says this. We saw this earlier in chapter 3. If you want to look at chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now again, I remind you that this church had went under a great fiery trial, a great ordeal, enough to shake their faith, but Peter takes that persecution and he identifies with it in chapter 1 and verse 7 as this great trial of faith. You and I, as well as them, are subject to our faith being tested. We can't go through this life and it not be tested and we should be thankful when it is. Because there are two things that are going on when our faith is tested. Number one, it reveals whether we really have genuine saving faith. That's the first thing. In fact, the entire book of James deals with that. But the second thing is is to reveal the strength of your faith. And some believe that when they go through trials and persecutions that, that they don't have an ability to to endure through it, let alone have any joy when they go through this. And if you remember, James 1.3 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. But you have to do what the next verse says as well. You've got to let endurance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if you struggle with that, the next verse says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. In other words, God will not scold you for asking. In fact, he wants you to keep asking because we lack the wisdom that we need. And I should say it really this way. We lack the appropriation of the wisdom we have. Because God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have everything you need to live the Christian life. You don't need anything else. You need to yield to the Bible and yield to the Spirit. That's what you and I have to do. So if you'll notice in verse 5 also, not only does he call for them to submit to their elders, but he also focuses in on clothing themselves with humility. And that really takes up the rest of the passage in talking about how important it is to live a life of humility. A comedian said one time someone gave him a button to pin on his shirt and it said humble and he wore it and then they took it away from him. 
Because I think the point was he wasn't supposed to wear it. Humility is not a badge you walk around and tell everybody that you have. But it is an attitude that you possess. And it's an attitude that you have to constantly work on because it, it is a way that you see yourself and it's the way you see others. And you humble yourself and you see that others are more important than you. And that's how you're able to minister to each other. That's how you're able to meet each other's needs as you put the others before yourself. And, and really a, a good passage that reminds us of this is found in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. You need to have this attitude that was in Christ. We had the Lord of glory, the creator, the redeemer, humble himself and come and take the form of flesh. That was humility. To leave a face-to-face -face relationship that he had with the Father and to come and take on a body. And that he humbled himself all the way to the point of the cross. And that gives us the greatest example of that. True submission is not without humility. Now, some people could say, well, you could force me to submit, and that would be humiliating, but that's not the idea. It's your willingness to submit, your willingness to humble yourself. And he says this is to be shown toward one another. And what does he mean by Humility. Well, he uses this word at least two times. You find it also, well, three times. You find it in verse 5 and verse 6. But I think you're going to be surprised as to exactly what it means. I mean, I can give you a basic definition of talking about a self-abasement or a lowliness of mind. I uh, find it very interesting that humility was not an admired trait in the first century among the pagan world. People saw it as a characteristic of weakness. They saw it as cowardice. They saw it as something to be tolerated only in the involuntary submission of slaves. But humility is a character virtue of God's people. For example, in Numbers 12 and verse 3, it tells us that Moses was the most humble man on all the earth. And God said that about him. That's amazing. It says in Numbers 12, 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And that's really significant when you think about how God used him. Second example of that would be Jesus. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble in heart. So we see some examples right here. But the word itself that he uses specifically describes the attitude of the one who willingly serves, even in the lowliest of tasks. 
Now you could think about that in your own life, and you can think about things that you do throughout the week or the job that you have. And sometimes you feel like that humility is beyond you. But it is the attitude that we are to possess. It is that virtue. And as I said, Jesus willingly went to the cross demonstrating humility. It says in Philippians verse 8 of chapter 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But you know, another place that we see this, and this is before his death, is in John 13. Let me have you to take your Bible and turn to John 13. And this is really probably what Peter had in mind. Because you remember, for Peter, it was very humiliating for him to have Jesus wash his feet. Remember Peter's response to that? Peter said in verse 9, Lord... Or let's go to verse 8. Never shall you wash my feet. You just couldn't fathom that. But Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, Peter couldn't, understand, couldn't, couldn't stand that either, right? So he says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Number one, I don't want you to wash my feet because I should be the one washing your feet. Number two... If I can't have a part with you, then give me a bath. If that's what I've got to do to stay close to you, if that's what I've got to do to have you, and essentially we'd all say the same thing, wouldn't we? Whatever the Lord requires of us. If He told you to go outside and spray paint yourself blue, we'd all be blue, wouldn't we? But I tell you what, I would say, was it really the Lord that said that? So Peter had to humble himself. He had to let the Lord do this. Amazingly so that we don't really hear what the other disciples thought of this. But I will tell you this. That the, all the disciples had issues. They had pride issues. They had issues of wanting to be exalted. Peter and John... Uh, not Peter, uh, James and John wanted to be one on the right hand and one on the left hand. In fact, on another occasion, they were arguing on who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And here Jesus tells them the greatest in the kingdom is the servant. The one who's willing to be the slave. See, because what was going on in this, this chapter is that they all came into the house and uh, there was no servant present to wash their feet. And when they would recline, they would recline, you'd have someone's feet at your head. It wasn't like you see in some of the pictures where they're sitting behind this table and they're all posing for the picture. They were reclining. Back in Luke 16, when it talks about Abraham's bosom, that was the idea. You reclined into the bosom of, a, of another. Jesus said that he gave them this example. that they would humbly serve each other. And that really was a lesson. And that's a lesson that it took some time for them to get. He's not advocating here an ordinance for the church to practice foot washing. 
as some churches do, is advocating humility. He's advocating serving one another. And to serve one another, to submit to one another, that means you have to humble yourself, right? Well, Peter says, you need to clothe yourself with humility and you do it like you put on a garment. This is the mind that you're to have toward each other. You're not to be prideful or haughty, but you're to associate with the lowly. Now the word that he uses here in verse 5 for clothe, it was the idea of this apron that a slave would wear and they would wear it over their clothing as they would perform their task. And so the believer is to put on this apron of humility to serve one another. Our entire being is to be covered with the virtue of humility. It's kind of like what Colossians 3.12 says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, and then he says, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. You put this on in your life and you put it on and you leave it on. And the reason, of course, that Peter gives for this is because he says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, which would you rather have? God opposed at you? God resisting you? God irritated with you? Or would you rather have his favor, his grace? Let me give you a few things the Bible teaches about pride. There was, uh, before I get to that, there was a music group, Christian music group, that had a song that said, I, me, my, mine. Four words that spell decline. I, me, my, mine. Where do we usually hear that? We hear it with our little small kids, right? But it exists in the older kids. It exists among adults. The Bible tells us over in Proverbs 6, 16, that God hates pride. He hates it. It says, These are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. And the first one He mentions is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. It says in Proverbs 21, 4, Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked is sin. And there are so many people today that are not willing to call these vices sin, but the Bible calls it sin. Pride is sin. And God hates it. One writer says, this is the attitude that overvalues self and undervalues others. It is that thought of the heart, that little look, and that turn of the face, that flash of the eye, which says that you're better than someone else. Stuart Scott, in fact, guys, I would recommend you get this book. It's called The Exemplary Husband. He writes this, When someone is proud, they are focused on self. This is a form of self-worship. A person is prideful who believes that they in and of themselves are or should be the source of what is good, right, and worthy of praise. 
They also believe that they by themselves and are or should be the accomplisher of anything that is worthwhile to accomplish. And that they should certainly be the benefactor of all things. In essence, they are believing that all things should be from them, through them, and to them or for them. Pride is competitive toward others and especially toward God. Pride wants to be on top. Thomas Watson quoted to have said, Pride seeks to ungod God. This certainly describes the arrogant. And this shows us really how deadly this sin is. Scott continues, he says, But what about those who are caught up in self-pity, who are self-absorbed with a sense of failure? This too is pride. They are just on the flip side of the pride coin. People who are consumed with self-pity are focusing on their own selves too much. They are not concerned with the glory of God and with being thankful for what good gifts and talents the Lord has given them, but instead are focused on how they think they have gotten a raw deal or how they are not as good as someone else. Self-pitying people desperately want to be good, not for the glory of God, but for themselves. They want to do things for and by their own power and might for the personal recognition. They want everyone to serve them, like them, and approve of them. When these desires are not fulfilled, a prideful person will become even more inwardly focused and will continue a vicious cycle. The self-focused person who bemoans the fact that they are not what they desperately want to be, elevated in esteem, should not be deceived by thinking that they are not proud. Nothing could be further from the truth. To sum it all up, a proud person believes that life is all about them. Their happiness, their accomplishments, and their worth. Here's the definition that he gives. He says, pride is the mindset of self. A master's mindset rather than of a servant. A focus on self and the service of self. A pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. You know where self should be? It should be last. We should serve Christ first Others second, self last. Christ has to be first. Pride is an abomination to God. It's sin. And because it's against God, as all sin is, God responds to it specifically. Let me give you six passages that speak specifically about pride and how God responds to it. The first one is Psalm 31, 23. It says, Oh, love the Lord, all you His godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud doer. Fully repays or recompenses. Another one is Psalm 101, verse 5. It says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Wow. God hates pride so much he can't endure it in his presence. 
You know, if you were to go to Isaiah 14, we find that Lucifer, as he was called, the son of the morning, he was a cherub. Ezekiel 28 tells us he was a cherub. He was on the holy mountain of God. In Isaiah 14, there are five I wills listed there as he sought to exalt himself above the Shekinah glory of God. And God cast him down. Psalm 119, verse 21, it's the third passage. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. And I would have to say that the prideful do wander from the commandments of God. They do not obey the word of God. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and assuredly he will not go unpunished. And then, of course, the passage that you're in, God is opposed to the proud. That's also quoted in James 4 and verse 6. But if you look at these passages I just read to you, all of them give a consequence to pride and how God feels about it. He's going to repay the proud doer. He's not going to endure them. He's going to rebuke them and tear down their house because they are an abomination. They will not go unpunished. He opposes them. So you see how deadly pride is in our life? And don't think that just because you came to a relationship with Jesus that you never struggle with pride again. That is not true. In fact, Stuart Scott gives a list that I want to read to you of how you can see pride in your life. He gives 30 of them, so we'll see how far we can get with it. And before we get to that list, uh, he makes this statement. The enemy of humility is pride. You cannot have humility where pride exists. Pride is the opposite of humility, and it is one of the most loathed sins in God's sight. But let's see if we can point out the manifestation of it. Because, you know, pride can be blinding. This is why it's often so difficult to see pride in ourselves, but we can see it easily in others. So here's a list of the manifestations of pride that can easily clear away the smoke of any self-righteousness. The first one is this, complaining against or passing judgment on God. See, a proud person in a difficult situation thinks, look, what God has done for me after all that I've done for Him. You think anybody would ever say that? People do say that, and they say some... Many of the things that maybe not get vocalized in your presence, but they think it in their heart. The book of James, he talks about that when you're tempted, you're not to say that God is the one tempting you, whether you do it directly or indirectly. And the passage in James 1.13 is an indirect. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. And you can read it back in the Greek. It says, let no one say to himself. I'm being tempted by God. James says, God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted 
when he is drawn away or carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Pride has a way of doing that, doesn't it? But that, of course, speaking of temptation in and of itself. But when you complain... God wants us to put aside complaining. It says in Philippians 2, to do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Think about the testimony that we have in, in this fallen world, and all they hear from us is complain. That can destroy your testimony of Christ. That can destroy your presentation of the gospel. Especially if you... Pass judgment on God. It's a dangerous thing to be angry at God. A second one would be a lack of gratitude in general. Proud people usually think that they deserve what is good. And the result is that they see no reason to be thankful for what they receive. And as a matter of fact, they may even complain because they think they deserve better. They are those who are critical, they're complaining, they're discontent. The person that's proud is not in the practice of being thankful toward God or toward others. So a lack of gratitude. A third one would be anger. A proud person is often an angry person. Now there is righteous anger. And there is unrighteous anger. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Which means resolve your conflicts because even the right kind of anger can turn into an opportunity for the devil. We tend to look at anger in various ways. But that would include outburst. That would include withdrawing or pouting. Or being frustrated. Usually a person often becomes angry because his rights or his expectations are not being met. So anger is a form of pride. A fourth one would be seeing yourself as better than others. Nobody would do that, right? But as I've said on so many occasions, we tend to compare ourselves to others instead of comparing ourselves to God. Matthew 5:48 you shall therefore be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. There's where you make the comparison, not with each other. We're going to run around and find someone that's not as bad as we are. But when you do that, that's putting you on top looking down on others. That's easily becoming disgusted and having little tolerance for differences. A fifth way pride is manifested is by having an inflated view of your importance or your gifts or your abilities. Many proud people have a very wrong perception of themselves. They need a loving dose of reality. They need to hear, what do you have that God didn't give you? Everything that we possess, God has 
richly provided. In fact, in the passage in James, it says in James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All those good gifts come from God. And we've even talked about even the unrighteous experience many times the blessings of God because, you know, they experience the sunshine, they experience the rain, they experience provision of food and clothing, of shelter, a job, all these things that they enjoy as well. And sometimes you might be over there working hard in your yard and trying to get it to be beautifully green and lush and all of those wonderful things that would enhance your your view of it, but you just can't get it there, and you look over and your neighbor's got it under control. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust, right? Number six is being focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. Some proud people may not come across as proud at all because they are always down on themselves. And this is still evidence of pride because one is focused on self and wants to, be, to have self to be elevated. Having this woe-is-me attitude is self-pity. And self-pity is pride. Another way pride manifests itself is by perfectionism. People who strive for everything to be perfect often do so for recognition. They do it so that they can feel good about themselves. And whatever the reason, this behavior is very self-serving and proud. And the basic problem is making things that are less important more important. And the reality is we're supposed to be viewing others as better than ourselves. Number eight, if you're keeping a list, pride manifests itself in ways to where we talk too much. Talk too much. Scott says proud people who talk too much often do it because they think that what they have to say is more important than what anyone else has to say. And when there are many words, sin is generally unavoidable. Sometimes people like to talk just to hear themselves. They like the way they sound. That's a form of pride. Another, not just talking too much, but talking too much about yourself. A proud person may center on themselves in conversation, sharing personal accomplishments or good personal qualities with others that could be bragging or boasting. And number 10, and by the way, there's 30 of these, Number 10, seeking independence or control. Some proud people find it extremely difficult to work under someone else. They find it extremely difficult to submit to authority. That's pride. They have to be their own boss. They're the ones that says, I don't need anybody. I don't need accountability for my faith. I don't need accountability for my teaching. Those type of people are often rigid, stubborn, headstrong, intimidating. And they may also say it's my way or no way. And sometimes we meet these, right? Number 11, pride 
manifests itself by being consumed with what others think. There's some people that can never get past that. All they worry about is what everybody thinks. They're too concerned about the opinions of others. You know, one of the things that made uh, Rush Limbaugh a great radio host, whether you agree with him or not, he didn't care what you thought about him. I've heard him say that several times. I mean, he cared about ratings on the radio because you live off ratings. He cared about his audience, and he demonstrated that as he communicated with them. But when it came to those who opposed him or those who were critical of him, he didn't care about that. Yeah, there are other people that live like that. But then there's some people that can't live like that. They, they hang on every word and every opinion, and they can't get past it. And before they do anything, they're worried about what so-and-so will think about it. So many of their decisions are based upon what others might think. They're in a continual pursuit of gaining the approval or the esteem of others. Number 12, being devastated or angered by criticism. See, here's one that takes it a step further. Yes, he's consumed with what others think about him, but he's also devastated or angered over those moments when they're being criticized. Proud people usually struggle a great deal with criticism. Some people cannot bear that they are not perfect. And they have weaknesses because they cannot accept who they really are. You know, we all ought to be equal on this. We all are the chief of sinners. We're all sinners. Saved by His marvelous grace. None of us deserve to be here this morning. None of us deserve to be in the family of God. None of us deserve to be forgiven of all of our sin. None of us. Pride doesn't stop there. Number 13, being unteachable. What do we say about an elder in the church? 1 Timothy 3.2, he used to be apt to teach. Apt to teach means he needs to be skilled in teaching. He also needs to be teachable. And many proud individuals, they come across as knowing it all. They can't learn anything. They can't gain anything from anyone because they look at themselves as the superior source of knowledge. They can't learn anything from someone else. Number 14, being sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading. Proud people can be very unkind. They belittle other people. And they usually want to raise themselves up above others. Very often this can be quite cleverly done by jesting. I think that that's one of the things we see in the vice president, isn't it? She has a mechanism that when she's questioned about something, what does she do? She laughs. She always has that same response. It's the same kind of response here. Some may excuse themselves by saying, well, this is just the way I am. That's my personality. If that's your personality, God hates it. <laughs> And He doesn't want you to have that kind of personality. He wants you to be humble. And He wants you to humble yourself. Number 15, another way that pride manifests itself is through a lack of service. 
You have proud people that may not serve because they're not thinking of others or because they want to be coaxed to serve. They, they don't want to continue if there's no praise. They need recognition. And that's a sure sign of wrong motives for service, that you're doing this just so that you can be recognized. There's some people that want to be told that, they're, that you're thankful for them and want to be told that a lot, that you appreciate them. And there's nothing wrong with you know, encouraging one another and, and complimenting one another, but you've got to be careful. And we've, we've said this too, that man is the only creature you can pat him on the back of the head and his head swells. So you've got to be careful. And we have to be careful how we receive uh, some of these compliments, you know. First, first and foremost, just give the praise to God because that's where it belongs. You are what you are because of His work in you. I always say it this way, anything good in our lives is Him. Anything bad in our life is us, right? Number 16, a lack of compassion. A person who's proud is rarely concerned for others and their concerns, and they can't see beyond their own desires. Number 17, being defensive or blame-shifting. Sometimes you'll hear a proud person say, are you saying that that's my fault? What about you? And they'll turn the table on you. And we're going, wait a minute, this, this, this conversation isn't about me, this conversation is about you. And I can see that in a Matthew eighteen fifteen situation where you see a brother or sister that sins and you're going to them privately and as you sit down with them, you've, you've considered yourself, you make sure you don't have that two-by-four beam in your own eye so you can get the little speck out of their eye. You're considering yourself, you're humbling yourself, you're understanding that this could be you and you go to that person privately and you seek to win your brother or sister, and they turn that table on you and say, well, what about you? Now, if you're prideful too, you'll have a great problem with that statement. In fact, you may find yourself defending yourself. What do you mean, what about me? See, the issue is, is others. Number 17 I think I just did 17. Number 18 is a lack of admitting when you're wrong. A lack of admitting when you're wrong. A proud person will make many excuses. They'll say things like, I was tired, I was having a bad day. And that's just a form of pride. You're not willing to admit that you're wrong. It, it takes humility to admit you're wrong, right? Right? Because pride doesn't want you to do that. Number 19, a lack of asking forgiveness. Proud people rarely admit their sin. They rarely ask for forgiveness of others. They either cannot see their sin because they're blinded by their pride, or they just can't seem to humble themselves before someone else and ask for forgiveness. Number 20, A lack of biblical prayer. Now, if you're hearing this like I was when I was reading them before today, you're sitting there and you're reading this and you're going, oh, that one got me, <laughs> that one got me. You know, it's just a knife in the heart. 
I think this one right here hits us all for sure. Most proud people pray very little. Some don't even pray at all. And when they do pray, they usually center their prayers on themselves or their desires rather than on God or others. That's why when you read the disciples' prayer, commonly called the Lord's Prayer, how does it start? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole first part of the prayer is Godward. It's all about Him. But if you're a proud person, where do you start? Luke 18. Remember Luke 18? Two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he looked at the tax collector and he says, I thank God I'm not like other men like this Pharisee or, or rather this tax collector. I'm not like them. See, that, that's a prayer that doesn't get heard. But the tax collector, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, I tell you that that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. A lack of biblical prayer. Number 21. Pride shows itself by resisting authority and being disrespectful. A proud person may just detest what he's told and what he's to do. He might say that, or we could say that he has a submission problem. And what they actually have is a pride problem. It's simply displaying itself in a lack of submission. That's why we said, you, you, when you're looking here at what Peter says in verse 5 about the younger submitting to the elders, it's going to take humility to do that. Because true submission involves humility. Number 22 would be voicing preferences or opinions when you're not asked. <laughs> A proud person might not be able to keep his preference or his opinions to himself. He offers it when he's not asked for, and these preferences usually are voiced without any kind of consideration of others. Number 23, minimizing your own sin and shortcomings. This is one who typically believes that their sin is no big deal. They think that they have a little sin and others have a great deal of it. Again, they're doing that comparison with others. I don't have as much of a problem as that person over here has. I'm better than this person. I don't do these things that this person's doing. That's pride. Number 24. Maximizing other sins and shortcomings. To the proud person, it's the other people that have the problem, not you. They may magnify or bring attention to the sin of others by gossiping about the other's sin. Number 25, being impatient or irritable with others. A proud person might be angry with other people because they are concerned at their own schedule or plans 
are being ruined. They're often inflexible on preference issues. Number 26, being jealous or envious. Often when they do not enjoy the same benefits, proud people have a hard time being glad for others. You know, they look at others and they said, they say, oh, I wish that was me. Instead of, good for them. That's good that that happened to them. That's a good thing. And I'm glad it happened to them. Number 27 is using others. A proud person usually views others in terms of what people can do for them, for their interest. Their focus is not on ministering to others because everything is for them and about them. So they use them. You know, that's, that's what some preachers have done by taking Charles Finney's anxious bench and incorporating that in the service, which in our modern terms is called the invitation. And I just want to tell you, the invitation to come to Christ began a long time ago. And you don't have to wait till the end of a service to come to Christ. You come to Christ right now. But Charles Finney, he was a master at manipulation. And that anxious bench or that invitation was an opportunity to manipulate people in coming. And preachers have done that too. Number 28, being deceitful by covering up sins, covering up your faults, covering up your mistakes. Some proud people will do just about anything in order for others not to find out the negative things about them. That's why when those things finally do come out, we're shocked. We're taken back of what we're hearing. And the sad thing even about that is sometimes the world will do what the church should have been doing in the first place. Number 29, using attention-getting tactics. That means that a person may try to draw attention to themselves through their clothing or through some bizarre behavior or becoming rebellious or always talking about their problems. And then number 30, not having close relationships. Proud people often have no use for close relationships. Because they think that the trouble outweighs the benefits. They may see themselves as so self-sufficient that they do not need other people. Well, that's difficult. You know, I can, I can see when one of my kids, one Samuel that's disabled, he might not be able to tell me things, but boy, he sure is loving and affectionate. He loves attention in a good way. I mean, because he can't tell us anything, and I love what he does. It's one thing he does. When, when you're hugging on him or kissing him, he takes his head and he pushes it forward on you. And then when you stop, he stops. And then when you go back, he does it again, and he just keeps doing it. Everybody cares about relationships. Everybody wants to have them. 
Go back to verse 5. God is opposed to this, the proud, and this behavior of the proud that we just went over. And by the way, uh, the end of verse 5 is a quotation from Proverbs 3.34. Though it reads a little differently, it says, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. And this is also quoted again over in James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes those who are proud. Here's some other verses that will help you with that. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Where does God dwell? He dwells with those who are humble. You know, the scripture says, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. So you've got to humble yourselves to do that. Paul understood this. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, because of the abundance of revelations that he had received, God had sent to him a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to humble him. And he had prayed and asked the Lord three times that he might remove it. And 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, God is speaking, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient. So Paul says in that case, I'd rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses. I'm well content with insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. That's important to hear that because when you move over to verse 6, now we get into why I titled this, Be Humbled. Though it says in your version, Humble Yourselves. The word that Peter uses here for humble, it's used as a passive in Greek. Some translated as a middle imperative, which would give you humble yourselves. Something you have to do. This is of your great interest that you do this. And though I would not disagree with us needing to humble ourselves, but this using it in the passive fits the context. Because what's the context? All kinds of humiliating situations were going on. And they needed to accept it. Many found that this was odd to have a passive here. But the point is that they needed to accept their state of humiliation that was imposed upon them by their persecutors, by others in general, by the trials that they face, but also by God. They must allow themselves to be humbled. They must accept their 
humiliation. That's like the guy is humiliated in front of a group of people. And instead of defending himself or having a comeback, he says nothing. Now again, we go back to what Peter said about Jesus, right? Go to chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. And while suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. So here He he is saying that the response that Christ had when He was threatened, when He was reviled, when He suffered, that's the response we're to have. So therefore, the passive works better. Be humbled. Spurgeon said you could be humble or be humbled. And there are a host of situations that humble us. Out of our control. Instead of resisting that, instead of fighting against that, accept it. Accept it. Because in that situation, God will give you grace. See, true humility is grounded in recognition of our need for and our dependence upon God. They must be willing to take the low place. Accept your humiliation. You know, we have examples of those who would not do this. Remember, Pharaoh wouldn't do this. Exodus 10.3, Moses and Aaron went to him and said... Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Belshazzar wouldn't do this either. Nebuchadnezzar's son, Daniel 5.22, he says, you have not humbled your heart. And you knew about your father and what happened when he lifted his heart up with pride. And for seven years, he was like a wild animal in the field. The Pharisees, they wouldn't humble themselves. You remember the story we... Referred to a moment ago about the two people that went into the temple. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. People today refuse to humble themselves. You know how we know that? Just look at the landscape across our country. People are mad, people are angry, and they're taking that out on anything and everyone. They shake their fist at God. And they don't realize that God is the sovereign of the universe. Peter says here, Be humbled under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is a description of God's sovereign power at work in your life. Some time ago I was listening to a message And it was a message by John MacArthur. His wife had been in a car accident. He didn't know it at the time, but she broke her neck. She was real close to dying. When he arrived at the hospital, his son met him, 
and told him what was going on. And it's what he said that shook me. It's what he said after that. And he said this. He said, son, there are no accidents. Let that sink in for just a moment. If God is sovereign, there are no accidents. This didn't happen by chance. Might not know all the sovereign purposes behind it. You think God is not there? You think God is like the deist would say? He would start everything and then just kind of back away? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of His power. Everything is upheld by His power. And God is sovereign. Think about Isaiah when he came into the temple. Uzziah, who'd reigned for 52 years, God just killed him because he took on the role of a priest and began to offer sacrifices. And God killed him for doing that. And so Uzziah, or rather Isaiah comes into the temple and what's the first thing he sees in that vision? God is on His throne. Israel had enjoyed this security by having a king reign for 52 years. Couldn't imagine that. But he went in there as if to find out what was going on. And boy, did he get an eyeful. See, trials and persecutions have a way to humble us. So we must accept the humiliation that they bring. And here's how you accept it. Look at verse 7 as we bring this to a close. Here's what it means to humble yourself or to be humbled and allow these circumstances to carry, their, carry out their course. And that's verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Robert Mounts says, when we turn ourselves over to God in every situation of life, knowing that the one who led his people out of the Egyptian slavery has allowed our affliction, is in full control. We are enabled to cast our anxieties on him. Charles Spurgeon said, he does not say laying all your cares on him, but he uses a much more energetic word. You have to cast the load upon the Lord. The act will require effort. It is no child's play to cast all your cares on our Lord when there are six little children, shoes worn out, cupboard empty, purse bare, and the deacons talking of reducing the scanty salary. Here's a work worthy of faith. You will have to lift with all your soul before the burden can be shifted and the anxiety cast upon the Lord. That effort, however, will not be half so exalting or exhausting as the effort of carrying your load yourself. You know, this is really speaks of Psalm 55, verse 22, which says, Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And here David's anxiety came from all the attacks that he had experienced. And the most difficult trial that he had to bear came from the one he loved and trusted. What's he mean by casting? Well, that means to place upon. It means to, to throw it upon. This is talking about a decisive, 
energetic act. In fact, the word is used in Luke 19.35 of throwing a blanket over an animal. And here he is telling you to throw all your anxieties, that is your disappointments, your discouragements, your despair, your questioning, your pain, your suffering in the context, your persecutions, whatever, any other trial you may encounter, throw that on the Lord. You can throw it on the Lord because Nahum 1.7 says the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the time of trouble and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 1.10. He says, He on whom we have set our hope. Is your hope in Christ? Is your hope in God? And why would you do this? Because He cares for you. And it's a present tense verb. He constantly cares for you. His care is tender, it's comprehensive, and it doesn't cause any anxiety. How about that? Let me close with this. Martin Luther said, You have such a promise as this, whereby you may rest secure that God doth not forsake you, but careth for you. Therefore let all your cares go and cast your burden on Him. These words are exceedingly precious. How could he have made them more sweet or tender? Why does he employ so great allurement? It is in order that no one might easily despond and give up his purpose. Therefore, he gives us such consolation as this, that God not only looks upon us, but cares also for us and has heartfelt regard for our lot. So when you go through these troubles and trials and persecutions, remember several things. God is in control. He's in control of your life. He cares about you. These are for purposes that some you may not even realize when you're going through it. But all trouble, all trials, all persecutions have, have a purpose. To make you like Christ. So God cares for you. And what sweet words those are to hear that. And you know, one of the ways we know that He cares for us is because of the work that He did on the cross for us, right? He met us at our greatest need. And He continues to care for us today as well as in the future. So if you're here today and you've never received Christ Today's the day of salvation. How do we know that today's the day of salvation? Because you're right here and you're hearing the good news. The good news is that you don't have to continue to be dead in trespasses and sins. The good news is you don't have to continue to have the sentence of death and hell on you or condemnation. The good news is Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. The bad news is, is if you... Never come to Him. You don't repent. You will experience the judgment of God. And you are under that judgment even as we speak. So I encourage you and I call you to repent. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of God this morning. We thank You for the opportunity for us to look at it. 
and to see how the situations that we face in our life are given to us to humble us, given to us to teach us and to grow us in grace. Help us to understand that when we experience these things, instead of trying to run from it, trying to to dodge it, it's actually a work of, of Christ in our life. Help us to see it as such. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us today. And we thank you that we were able to share together in your word. And we 